Like, did you hear what Anya said today? Go on. Did you know, Dad, 23 years ago, YouTube didn't exist? <laughs> okay. I was like, no, I did not know that. We had to rely on MTV back then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, when MTV played music. You- YouTube is the reason why MTV doesn't play music. Uh, YouTube is the reason MTV's crap now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. We used to have videos, that like recorded music videos from MTV. Yes, we did. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Video cassettes. Oh, yeah. I've still got some. It was a more innocent time. Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey, kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, but we can make them better than they were before. Better. Stronger. Faster. Hey kids, comics! And here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And welcome back to the show. We're not singing the intro this week. No, We're going to sing our intro. Welcome you to the show. We're welcoming you. No one can see my dancing for you. But you were supposed to do We're welcoming you. We're welcoming you. We're welcoming you to Hey Kids Comics. 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 Here on TT. That's what Animal totally used to do. That That was nice. (laughs) Yeah, it was in key as well. I'm sure it was, yeah. It was in A key. (laughs) Yeah, but it wasn't the right key. No. Uh, This week, I was on another show. You're always on another show. It was great. This one was recorded a while ago, but it's only just coming into release. John S. Drew. Mm-hmm. He of Cyborg, a bionic podcast, which is excellent. Love Cyborgs. Uh, asked me on his Batman podcast about right. the Adam West TV show. And we did discuss the Frank Goshen Riddler episode. I forget the name. Death in Slow Motion, the Riddler's False Notion, was it that one? Oh no, it was Ringo Wax, him the axe. I'm mixing up my Riddler episode. It was right. great, it was fun. John's always a good laugh. Go and check that out. The Batman podcast, it's on the Chronic Riff Network. Okay. He hasn't done a trailer for it, or I would include it in the show. Mm-hmm. John should make a trailer for it. I'll make your own. It's totally good, yes. You know, we used to have people making trailers for us. Scott Gardner made us a brilliant one once. I need to find it. It's on the computer somewhere. Yeah. And we'll play it again. If I find it, we'll put it here. Okay. Just once in a lifetime does a podcast come along that pushes the boundaries of the medium, that redefines what it is to be an internet radio broadcast. That touches us, reaches into us, inspires us, teaches us, that causes us to re-examine just who we are and why we are, that expands our horizons, that makes us completely rethink our destiny in this cosmos and our place in the grand design. Just once 
in a lifetime. But while we're all waiting for that podcast to be invented, why not give a listen to Hey Kids Comics? Hey Kids Comics is a smart, fresh, and hilarious podcast that looks at all kinds of fun and interesting topics related to the ever-evolving world of the comic book art form. You can find Hey Kids Comics at aplayland.podomatic.com. That's Hey Kids Comics. Sorry. If it is me, it's our, our own podcast. Yeah, 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 yeah. Why not? Oh yeah, sure. <laughs> it's a bit crass, if you think. <laughs> uh, so straight to emails. Have we met? Unless you've got something. Have you got something? No, no, no. Nothing of import to talk about this week. No. Nothing interesting in the news section of the show. You know, the topical part of the show that we try not to do because the show isn't topical by the time it actually gets released. Should I have anything interesting? I feel like I should have something interesting to say. I don't think I have anything interesting to so. say. Me neither. You know. We'll move on then. Okay. The fact that we have nothing interesting to say is probably situation normal. If yes. First email tonight is... Belay that boy wonder bashing. I didn't know we belayed the boy wonder. Or bashed the boy wonder. I do not remember Is that, that a euphemism? Bashing the boy wonder. <laughs> it is now. <laughs> it's from the mighty Chris Franklin. Chris Franklin has a podcast okay. called Supermates. It's him and his missus Cindy. It's very good. I do like it. He also published man, published, back yeah. issue magazine, including this month's incredible Hulk issue, which is really good. Still, still was, was yours? I don't, I don't know. Oh, yeah. It's just not good. If, if you do get a back issue... Publication, does that mean you get funny little letters next to your name? What, B.I.? Yeah. After me. I've got funny little letters after my name. I keep telling you this. <laughs> I don't use them because I consider them slightly pretentious, but I do have them. But if you have B.I. next to your name, would you use it? Would you rub out the bottom bit of the B so it looks like a P? <laughs> <laughs> yes! Andy, P.I. And thus a dream has been fulfilled. I'm shocked. Shocked, I tell you. To hear you two throw off on Robin like this, starts Chris's email with no preamble. He's obviously very annoyed with us. <laughs> shocked, even. It's shocked. I expect more out of you two. It's so easy to critique Golden Age stories as corny, with huge suspensions of disbelief, but I thought you two were above this. Yes, Robin was often more boy plot device than boy wonder, but I really like the early Daredevil maker, Robin. I think too much of that was lost over the years, and he essentially became similar to his gosh, yes, Batman persona made famous by Burt Ward. It's always bugged me that in nearly every retelling of Batman encountering a major foe, Robin is usually left out, despite him being there to originally meet every rogue in the gallery. Cheapens his importance to the Batman canon. In both Joker retellings, he's not there. In all the Year One annuals, he's absent hell. In most retellings of Batman's first meeting with Ra's al Ghul, he's nowhere to be found. And the original story hinges on Ra's secretly capturing Robin to test Batman. But wait, this episode was about the Joker, right? Sorry, I'm a staunch Robin defender. Unless it's Damien, you can keep him. And I will not tolerate any bad words said about the original kid sidekick. At least not without a good rebuttal. Well, I suspect someday, Christopher, may have a rebuttal about Damien. I, I like Damien. That one issue that we read, Death of the Family, I quite liked him too. Yeah, he but. grows on you like a mutated fungus. <laughs> you don't want to, but you end up liking him. You don't want to like him? Yeah, yeah. But ultimately, you end up liking it. Alright, fair enough. Before we get to the comics themselves, I agree with Andrew on Bob Kane. Well, that's nice, because nobody else did. Kane's father was a lawyer, and he was no dummy. 
The fact that he, or his handlers, was smart enough to broker a good deal should not be held against him. His blatant plagiarism and claims of creating things on his own when he did not should be held against him, but as you said, that's a different matter. Siegel and Schuster envisioned Superman being a big hit, with Schuster even doodling Superman selling cereal and other products, predicting his popular branding to come. Why in the world they once sold the whole thing so cheap still baffles me, but they did, and I have a hard time feeling sorry for them or their heroes once Warner's got off their butts and made sure they were comfortably taken care of in the 70s. The latest money grab appears to be just that with the Siegel estate doing quite well now, thank you very much, thanks to Jerry and Joe's creation. If only such monies were sent to Kirby's estate as his family gets nothing from the blockbuster Marvel films made off his back but I digress. Now, we'll just editorialise for a second. I'm interested in that. Okay. Does Cap Kirby's family get nothing? Because it was posted today on Facebook Mm -hmm. by Bill Mantlow's brother. You are aware of Bill Mantlow. I am. Bill Mantlow was a writer, for those that are not aware. Had an exceptional run on Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man in the 80s. And the late 70s, I think. Wrote it twice. As well as essentially creating Rom Space Night, Micronauts, and uh, an excellent run on The Incredible Hulk, as well as being a Marvel go-to guy. Was sadly involved in an accident that has essentially left him uh, very brain damaged. Mm. So he can't look after himself. So his brother looks after him. I think his brother's name's Mike Mantlow. He recently posted on Facebook that there's been a lot of things going around, like, Rocket Raccoon's in a movie, Bill Mantlow created Rocket Raccoon, Marvel should give him some money, damn it! He recently posted on Facebook that Marvel have taken care of him and continue to to send him royalties and checks Mm. based upon whatever of his sells or whatever that he's entitled to. There's never been any problem with it. They have always sent him money. I'm very interested to learn why this isn't the case with Jack Kirby, other than, obviously, Kirby is now dead. So is this a case of Jack Kirby's errs don't get anything? In which case, we're in a Siegel and Schuster situation whereby the people who actually created Superman are dead, therefore the people who want more money didn't actually create Superman. No. So I'm I'm confused about that. I'm confused why Jack Kirby got nothing. Was it because his contract was different from Bill Mantlow's? Maybe it was. Because Bill Mantlow's stuff was still work for hire, unless Marvel are just stepping up and saying, we've got this huge, big movie coming out based on the back of characters that he had a hand in creating legally we don't have to give him something but morally let's give him a check because of his medical condition in which case I applaud them and I think it's about time we we showed the the fur side of the story as well as that these big corporations are ripping these little people off yeah you know well personally both sides of the argument personally I don't think that relative should get any royalties you know, it's an incredibly controversial opinion, that, but I agree with you wholeheartedly. Yeah. I don't think Joanne Siegel, who's now dead, J. David Weitra informed me, I thought she was still alive, <laughs> but apparently she is sadly deceased. But I certainly don't think the, the grandchildren or the children should get a penny. Say I create something that I write, right? Yeah. And it goes on to be very successful, and I sell it for £10 million to Universal Studios to develop as a movie, right? Right. And then when it's all done and dusted, they come to me and say, we want to buy this outright from you. Right. And I say, right, 30 million and it's yours. And they say, okay, 30 million, here you go. I'm cheaper than George Lucas. Okay. 400 million he sold Star Wars for. At that point, right, I'm done with it. You would get nothing after that initial 30 million was spent. I did the cover and did all the content. It doesn't matter. If I sell it outright for 30 million, you get nothing, your brother gets nothing, your sister gets nothing. Yeah. Your children certainly get nothing. Hmm. Right? Yeah. And that's perfectly fine. If, however, I get it written into the contract that, okay, I will sell it you, but I want my family to get 
10% of it in perpetuity, hmm. then you should get something. But, yeah, it's a very controversial opinion that the Siegel and Schuster Urs should get nothing. And uh, But it's one I agree with. I'm sorry if you disagree with it, hmm. but it's an opinion I agree with. I don't think necessarily think Jack Kirby's Urs should get anything. Kirby should have been well rewarded while he was alive. There's no dispute there. Yeah. Kirby created 50% of much of what we think of the Marvel Universe. Maybe 60 yeah, all right, maybe so. <laughs> okay. The, the percentage may vary, yeah. depending on your point depending of view. Depending on uh, Stan or Jack's telling of yeah, it. Yeah, and depending on other people's opinions <laughs> on Stan and Jack's telling of it. <laughs> yeah. But the bottom line is, the guy did deserve something yeah. for what he created. And nobody's disputing that. And even the Fantastic Four, you get to the later issues, and it doesn't say written by Stan and penciled by Jack. It just says by Stanley and Jack Herbert. Both of them did it. And he deserved some kind of recognition and financial reward for that while he was still alive. Nobody's disputing that. But now that he's sadly no longer with us, why should his family get something? I don't think we should. Fair enough. That's that's just me. I'm not disagreeing with you. I have the same opinion that you do. Yeah. But I am always interested in other people's opinions. I am interested in why they think people who had nothing to do and may not even been alive when the Fantastic Four were created are now entitled to some money for it. Yeah. You know? I mean, I'm genuinely interested in it. Wow, we got a bit deep, though, didn't we? <laughs> Should we move on and not be deep anymore? Let's yes. move on and talk about funny books. Odds the stories, continues Chris. I'm a sucker for early Batman, particularly after Robin enters the picture. But before Batman is recognised as an agent of law by the police, Kane and company's art was crude, but much more evocative and moody than most of their peers. Finger's stories were sometimes quite grim, but he lightened them up just enough to make them palatable. Batman did have a sense of humour, good or bad, may depend on your point of view. I really didn't lose it until people overdid the Millerisms in the late 80s, early 90s. The O'Neill, Adams, Engelhart, Rogers Batman was known to crack wise a bit, as does the ultimate version of the character the animated incarnation. Like Michael, I will have to pick that first Joker tale as my favourite, almost more for nostalgia than anything else. I first read the tale in a reprint of Detective Comics issue 27 that I ordered via mail by sending in proofs of purchase from Oreo cookies in the mid-80s. This all-reprint comic, no slick cover, contained the first Batman tale from Tech 27, the first Robin from issue 38, and this Joker tale. What a great golden age primer for a young Bat fan. I enjoyed the Legends of the Dark Knight issue 50 retelling very much. O'Neill's Batman always read true to me, and I liked Blevins' art here and on Shadow of the Bat. His Joker was particularly grotesque and demented. See, DC, you don't have to cut off his face to make him scurry. That is the single most offensive thing the new 52 has done. The Joker has always been portrayed as incredibly vain and obsessed with his appearance, from Nicholson to that great Jerry Conway, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, story in the early 80s, where he puts his face on a mountain. His vanity has always been a huge character trait. Why would he want to cut his face off? This is utter crap. I'm sorry. The man who laughs, meh. Unnecessary all round, I think. It didn't do it any better than Legends of the Dark Knight 50 did, so why bother? I agree, Batman's beating of the Joker at the end was over the top and a sign of the dark road DC would keep taking further and further. The Red Hood story, yeah, it's not that great. Probably the weakest tale in the original greatest Joker stories ever told. Alan Moore wasn't the first to dig the Red Hood back up, though the Joker's origin is recounted as such in the Untold Legend of the Batman miniseries in 1980, which is a great series. Love until Legends of the Batman. Well, I've been extremely long-winded, but hey, it's Batman. And despite your defamation of Robin, you guys are still my two favourite Englishmen. I'll be back next week for some of my favourite Joker tales and your take on them. Thankfully, Robin's not around to get beat up on. Chris. 
P.S. You know I'm just busting your chops, right? Yes, we knew that, Chris. We knew you were having fun with us. Because I, I do think we did say in that episode we were just goofing around. Yeah. We didn't really think all of that was Robin's fault. It was just fun <laughs> to take the piss out of it, basically. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't think it, uh, it detracted from the fact that we both thought that that was a very excellent comic up until its last third. Up until Robin shows up. Up until Robin showed up, <laughs> yes, when he was a stupid idiot <laughs> and it was all his fault. Sorry, Chris. Only kidding. Next email, Michael Bailey! Hey. Ba- Mikey Mike B is in the house. <laughs> in the house. In the house. Is that not what you said? Suddenly this is early 2000s again. <laughs> yes. Suddenly I'm dressed like Will Smith from Fresh Prince. Suddenly I make this look good. Uh, yeah, okay. Thoughts on Bob Cade? Oh dear. Here we go. Do you ever wish you'd cut something out of a show? <laughs> hey, mate. Hey, Michael. I was listening to your first instalment of Dreadful Birthday Dear Joker this morning on the way to work. What prompted me to write was your discussion of character creation. We've been chatting about this recently, so your comic seemed rather timely, despite you recording this episode a week or two in the past. Oddly enough, I'm not writing to argue about really created Batman or the Joker or any of that. In all honesty, I'm kind of done talking about that sort of thing in any meaningful way. One, I just don't have the energy for it anymore, and B, I wasn't there. I have no monetary stake in any of these creations, and frankly, at nearly 38 years of age, I really just want to enjoy the stories I read rather than getting all into the backroom deals, infighting, and all-around shenanigans that apparently goes on in creating comics. Can you imagine if there actually were shenanigans? Shenanigans! If Jim Lee and Jeff Jones put those fart cushions on Dan <laughs> Dio's chair, DC office Tom Fuller. And then Dio's going, Ah, Lee! Stomping on his hat. <laughs> Tom DeFalco's though with cigar in his mouth. <laughs> Michael continues. You mentioned in the episode that people seem to be bothered by the fact that Bob Kane had the sense to get a lawyer and iron things out with DC, while Siegel and Schuster didn't. This is very true. Bob Kane's dad was a lawyer, and because of that, Bob had the sense to get things in writing. If that was the end of the matter, I don't think people would have been as upset as they got in later years. To me, it wasn't that he got it in writing, it's that he flat out lied about creating the character in years later. There was a rather famous, in fan circles at any rate, letter he wrote to a fanzine in the 60s, where he pretty much said, I created Batman. It was all me, and Bill Finger had nothing to do with it. That letter was reprinted in the Batcave Companion, a fantastic book, by the way. Which I have, top there. It's on yeah. that bookshelf up there. So between that and other instances where he claims sole credit, fandom got their knickers in a twist. So couple that with the fact that he used numerous goat, ar- goat, goat artists. Hold <laughs> 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 <Bold> that pose. <laughs> Ghost artists, while still claiming sole credit and generally being an asshole, gets fandom all up in arms. Again, I'm not arguing this from an impassioned fan because fright, fright, frank, quite fright, quite. <laughs> Going well. Is that his twin? That's his twin, yes. Again, I am not arguing this from an impassioned fan, because quite frankly, and to put it bluntly, I just don't give a toss anymore. I'm just giving another side of the why people dump on Bob Kane argument. A few years ago, I would have taken a different stance, but as I stated, I've gotten to the point where I just want to read the stories and judge them on the basis of whether or not I liked them, and not on who created the Joker, or what happened between Bill Finger and Bob Kane. Love the episode, as always, y'all. Take care, Mikey Mike B. Actually, this was addressed... Young Michael, thank you for emailing in. On Fat Man, on Batman recently. Do you listen to them? I don't. Sometimes they are astonishingly brilliant. Because I really find, as much as I like Kevin Smith's work, I find the man to be intolerable. Do you? Yeah. Right. I couldn't even make it through that Grant Morrison one without... Could you not? No. See, Grant Morrison is just so... He respects what you think of his work, and you know, lukewarm, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. As a guy, he's fascinating to listen to. Yeah. Such a magnetic, charismatic personality mm. that he overshadows 
the fact that Kevin Smith was... I have nothing against Kevin Smith. Except for when Kevin Smith butted in with Fart Joe. Yeah, and I hate all that, all over your neck, chest and face, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Go away, Kevin, that's just a little bit gross to think of you doing that to anybody. <laughs> but the Neil Adams one yeah. was... Well, three, actually. They did a three-part Neil Adams story. It was fantastic. Mm. And he gets into that very issue. Um, Kevin actually asks him, well, what about Bill Finger? You did all this champion of creators' rights. Yeah. You got DC to cough up for Siegel and Schuster, as well as getting the byline on the work, all of that stuff. Neil Adams' retort was basically, Bill Finger never wanted it. Bill yeah. Finger didn't come to me and say, I co-created Batman, what can we do about it? He never fought for himself. Mm. So basically, Neil Adams says, if he didn't want to fight for himself, then why would other people fight for it? Yeah. And ultimately, you can argue that Bill Finger essentially Bob Kane created Batman Bill Finger created everything that we think of as being Batman yeah. I think that's pretty in- indisputable is at what point does it become you're fighting for a just cause or you're fighting for a cause just because you don't like Bob Kane yeah do you get what I mean mm. and again you know these are all just our opinions you can you can disagree with them and I will still like you there'll be a lot of emails coming in for next week's show I hope so I like emails Kyle Benning has emailed in, and speaking of emails, uh, Hey Kids Comics Joker Part 1 Feedback. Hello, Kyle. Ah, the Joker. Perhaps the most notable and infamous comic book villain of all time. Edging out... (laughs) Very good. Edging out even Lex Luthor and Doctor Doom. Great choice, Leyland. I think most people's issues with Bob Kane, and mine as well, (laughs) stem from the years he got paid and signed his name to art for years that he didn't draw. Bob, no doubt, was incredibly smart for how he handled the settling with DC and raking in the cash. It's just too bad he didn't let his co-creator and friend Bill Finger in on the deal. Well, I think we've covered all of that today. Paul Cooperberg touched on the context of the changing times this quandary poses in a great essay he wrote. I read it courtesy of Mike Bailey posting it on Facebook. So I recommend checking that out and giving it a read if you haven't already. Yeah, it was exceptionally good of Michael to post that on Facebook. Was it? Yes, yes. I, I, I did have a jolly good read of it after Michael posted it on Facebook. Did Michael post it on Facebook? He certainly did, yes. Did and, and I did enjoy reading it after Michael posted it on Facebook, yeah. But Batman did kill the Joker at the end of the killing joke. No, he didn't. (laughs) Or at least that article was floating around on the internet a year ago and so made a convincing case to support the theory. I agree, I don't like the idea that the Joker is really his uncle. I think it can easily be chalked up to it's the Joker just doing what the Joker does best, manipulating people to suit his needs and convincing people to enlist themselves as his pawns. Uh, do you look? You're a Morrison aficionado. Do you agree with that reading of Killing Joke, or do you think it's bollocks? Um, I don't see where it's coming from because from the argument I've read towards it it's pointing out very very minute details that you can only get if you're looking for that I don't agree with it at all I don't think the art substantiates that claim no I reread those final few pages just to see it but you read the description saying you can see Batman doing a little twist with his arm which could imply he's going for it no, no you don't yeah the whole point of it is it's cyclical. The Batman-Robin... Batman-Robin. The Batman-Joker relationship will continue until the bitter end. Yeah, but I, I don't like the end of Killing Joke anyway. What, him having a laugh with the guy who's just crippled yeah. Barbara Gordon and sexually humiliated Commissioner Gordon? Yep. Yeah, it is a bit distasteful. Yeah. yeah. 
anyway, again, you know, as we've said a couple of times before, I read an interview with a creative person. I think it may have been Michael Stipe, actually, now that I think about it. Yeah. And he said he never answered. My reading of The Killing Joke. Yes, <laughs> Michael Stipe told us all about the reading of The Killing It was brilliant, isn't it? He thought he was a Batman fan. Yeah. And he basically said he stopped answering questions uh, in interviews years ago when people would ask him what this song is about. Because as far as he was concerned, once it was gone yeah. and it was out there, his opinion on what it was about was the least important thing. What does it mean to the listener? Mm. And it's the same, and I was reading that and I was thinking, well, that's the same with any piece of art. Once it's out there, what the reader reads into it or gets from it, or if it's a movie, what the, the viewer gets out of it, may not be at all what the original creator intended. Yeah. Mark Kermode has said on the BBC's movie show that sometimes the creator of the art is the least reliable person to be able to tell you what that art is about. Yeah. Because they're so close to it and they've worked on it for so long that you can watch it completely independent, not having poured over it and created it, and you go, ah, right, this is about Guantanamo Bay, or, ah, this is about feminism, and the creator may go, it wasn't about that at all. <laughs> yeah. So... You know, so that, anyway, that's basically where we're going with that, you know. He reads the end of The Killing Joke and sees that in it. I read the end of The Killing Joke and don't see that in it. Mm. I don't think either one of us are wrong, and Alan Moore certainly isn't talking. Sorry, the original writer certainly isn't talking. <laughs> if you say the original writer about something like Swamp Thing, aren't you referring to Len Wee? No, Alan Moore. All right, OK. Anything Alan Moore touches, he's the original writer. Fair enough. Uh, Kyle continues, never read any Hawkman. I anticipate Luke Giaconetti has something to say about that. Superman's origin seems to be fair game with any, to anyone with a pen. Ha, I lost it at that line. Oh, I said that. All right. I got quite the look from my co-workers due to laughing so hard. Too true, since 2000 seems like we've gotten a new Superman origin retelling every 12 to 18 months. No love for the Joker's utility belt, which is originally published in Batman 73. I don't, I don't mind that story. I like it better as, the Adam, as an episode of the Adam West show. It's funnier, though. First read that in the 80-page Giant Batman issue 176, and it may have been one of the first Joker stories I ever read, so that one will always have a special place in my heart, so I'm obviously a little biased. And that issue, that 80-page Giant Batman 176, provided so much inspiration for the 1960s Batman show. Yeah. Because it was a reprint of a lot of different stories. They cribbed so much from that issue. Great episode, thanks Kyle. I really looked forward... No, I don't. I really enjoyed both of your in-depth analysis of these issues. Are you both reading Batman 66? I am. I quite like it. I'm curious what you guys take on that series. I'd love to see you cover issues that have come out as well as the Batman TV stories trade DC just released, collecting Batman 53, 73, 121, 140, 169, 171, and Detective Comics 233, 46, and 359. Best regards, Kyle. Benning. You're very welcome, Kyle. We're glad that you enjoyed the episode. Final email tonight, because I think we've done a lot of weirdo tangents. Apparently we've done weirdo tangents. Hmm. Maybe just tangents. Just tangents. Our email is from Trey Hooks, who is first time. Mm-hmm. First time writer to the say. show. What? They're only good for the first time. Are they really? Yeah. The Bob Kane legacy. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Andrew and Michael. Hello, Trey. I'm a recent fan of Hey Kids Comics. We don't have fans, Trey. We have listeners. I like the idea we have fans. I don't. I'm not com- I think that's just egocentric to the extreme. Well, if my head was any bigger... Yeah, that's true. It wouldn't fit through the door. Uh, let's be honest. Our little piece of the pie is very small, mm. given what we do and who we aim at. It's a very small thing. We don't have fans. We have friends and listeners. Right. Very uncomfortable with the idea of having a fan. <laughs> Of the show. I don't know, it kind of makes it seem too real. What does? Having fans. No. It makes it seem too big. 
I don't, I don't like fans. Okay. Fans, no. Listeners, friends. That's what we have. Everyone's a friend. Except for those people who email in just to say, you're wrong, and here's why. <laughs> I actually really like those people. <laughs> oh, can't we just be friends? <laughs> no, I don't like you. Yeah, you can be friends with people who disagree with you, you know. <laughs> I know this is a wacky concept in the era of Twitter and Facebook, <laughs> but you can disagree with people and still like them. If people don't say that I'm right, then... I... <laughs> you can have different political opinions. You can have different religious opinions. <laughs> and God forbid, worst of all, you can have different opinions on comics and still like each other. But you can't write, like, opposing things. You, you can't like both Star Wars and Star Trek. I can. No, you can't. I totally <laughs> can. They, they, they furnish different needs. Anyway, we interrupted Trey's email. I discovered the show thanks to the Fantastic Cast, which you should go and listen to, because me and Stephen Lancey do it, and we're very funny. You should go and listen to it, because Stephen told me to tell you. Because <laughs> Stephen made me pimp the show. Which, listen, which I started listening to from the beginning last month. I'm only halfway through the episode, Dreadful Birthday Dear Joker, part one. But I was moved to write because of Andrew's defence of Bob Kane, a position I wholeheartedly agree with. Where were you people last week? <laughs> When I was getting hauled over the coals. I often feel like Bob Kane is the most unnecessarily vilified figure in comics history because he had the audacity to negotiate a good business deal for himself, possibly invest it wisely to the point that he made a good living from comics. At worst, he allowed some outmoded business practices to linger. To understand the legitimacy of Bob Kane, you have to understand the way early comics worked. Comic's business model was based largely on the model of its forefather, the newspaper strip. A newspaper syndicate would hire a creator to create a property or buy a property from a creator, then contract them to provide regular material for it. If the strip became profitable, a creator would subcontract the work and form their own studio. The first comic strip creator to make a fortune this way was Bud Fisher, creator of Mutt and Jeff, and Bud Fisher was Bob Kane's idol. Similarly, early comics publishers worked the same way. While the story is lionised of the two hard-luck kids shopping the clipped-together story around, Siegel and Schuster were a two-man studio that supplied DC with Spy, Steve Carson, Federal Agent, Radio Squad, and Slam Bradley before selling DC on Superman. Simon and Kirby were content providers. So were Iger and Eisner, who first Kane worked with. When Kane started getting more assignments than he could handle, he eyed Bill Finger to ghostwrite for him. Unlike the other studios, which were more even partnerships, Finger clearly worked for Kane, and at least at that time, was happy with the arrangement. It wasn't unusual for individuals to be uncredited and the credit go to the studio. Heck, when Superman was a big enough draw that Siegel could afford to expand the art staff beyond Schuster, Siegel, who handled the business affairs, replaced Schuster, and the comics ran just under Jerry Siegel's name. According to various sources, including Jim Steranko's The History of Comics, whilst Bill Finger definitely contributed elements without which Batman would not be Batman, the initial idea was Bob Kane's. Kane was able to negotiate a better deal because of several reasons. The first is that he knew the business. He had relatives in printing. Secondly, Siegel and Schuster had already started their first lawsuit. My take was that Siegel and Schuster, mainly Siegel leading Schuster, always tried to claim the lion's share of the pie themselves. Kane used the leverage of the Siegel-Schuster deal to ask for a better percentage, but nowhere near the levels they were, and the consistent creator credit. Most people attack Kane based on three things. Number one, he made money, and Finger died penniless. Sure, Kane made more than Finger. In a real way, Kane owned a company and Finger was an employee for a period of time of that company. There's no evidence that Bob Kane paid Bill Finger less than any other ghostwriter of the day, and I haven't found any quoted complaints from Bill Finger himself on his compensation. My personal opinion, similar to the Siegel and Schuster situation, is that Bob Kane isn't to blame for what Finger did or didn't do with his money. Similarly, the creators of Superman were lower middle or upper lower class in the late 70s, but while the property they sold would later reap millions, they did make 
tens and hundreds of thousands, when that money was worth much more than it's worth today. Two, Bob Kane was a lesser artist than his contemporaries. I think this is debatable. I would agree that Bob Kane is not the artist Dick Sprang or Sheldon Moldoff was, but when you look at some of the other Golden Age artists, they were much worse than Kane filling DC Comics at the time. Number three, Bob Kane got credit for work he didn't do. You could argue his self-titled studio got credit, but yes, this is true. However, this was a common practice performed by many of his contemporaries. His sin was extending the practice into the 60s, when many gave it up in the early 50s. Anyway, I was glad to hear him get some defence on your show, which I am annoying immensely. Thanks, Trey Hooks. Well, you're, you're very welcome. I think we can move on from the Bob Kane thing now, though. Until next week, <laughs> when we get more emails about it. <laughs> anyway, we're going to take a break and uh, plug somebody's show, and we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Nuke Chas, the host of Nutty Bites. And hi, I'm Tech, Nutty's regular guest. Or antagonist. Our podcast is like a call-in show where geeks get to debate topics about speculative fiction. We don't really debate. Sure we do. We debate topics such as lame superpowers, the best villains, and our favorite apocalypses. We more like rant, rave, and then have massive nerd rages. People call in from all over the world, sometimes minor celebrities, and we've even had some supervillains show up. Do you ever notice that you never have any superheroes or good guys? I'm a good guy. Compared to what? Antagonist, not really a guest. Nutty Bites, nimlast.org. The Transformers began in the 1980s as two different Japanese toy lines, Microman and Diana Cloak. Hasbro, fresh from the success of the G.I. Joe toy line, bought the license and, as with G.I. Joe, Marvel Comics were hired to create a comic book based upon the toys. Marvel's then editor-in-chief, Jim Shooter, and writer Denny O'Neill were hired by Hasbro to create the backstory, and O'Neill came up with the name of the lead character, Optimus Prime. Writer Bob Bodiansky created most of the other Transformers characters, giving names and personalities to many unnamed figures. They also developed the premise, which was that the heroic Optimus Prime, the villainous Megatron, and the finest soldiers crash land on prehistoric Earth in starships the Ark and the Nemesis from the home planet of Cybertron. They remained dormant until awakening in the mid-1980s. Whilst there were diverging continuities between the cartoons and the comics, it's the comics that seemed to have the more interesting plot lines and were to give Marvel UK one of its biggest ever hits. Between September 1984 and January 1992, Marvel UK published 332 single issues of Transformers, seven hardback annuals and over 30 specials, making it one of the most successful licensed comics ever produced in this country. Initially, as with all UK Marvel titles, it started publishing US material, when the comic debuted as a bi-weekly 32-page magazine-sized, part black-and-white, part colour comic, cover dated September 20th, 1984. The US Marvel comic was originally part of the main Marvel Universe, with appearances from Spider-Man and Nick Fury, plus other cameos, and a visit to the Savage Land. Publishing of the UK comic followed rapidly on the heels of the US original, which debuted as a four-issue bi-monthly miniseries on May 8th, 1984, and the plan from the beginning was to produce UK material, especially if Marvel US didn't pick up the license after that initial mini. Marvel US did continue the series, which made it more financially viable for Marvel UK to proceed with their plans, but with the standard publishing policy of 11 pages of Transformers plus backup strips, it became readily apparent, especially when the comic became weekly and in full colour with issue 27, that the US material was not going to be plentiful enough to pad out the comic on a regular basis. Using more backup strips was an option. 
Transformers UK, as with other Marvel UK weeklies, traditionally used appropriate US material as backup, normally other robotic strips such as Machine Man or Iron Man, or other licensed strips such as Action Force. But the simple fact was UK material was going to be a necessity. Thus, Marvel UK started churning out their own stories with issue 9. Initially, this material was slipped in between the US reprints and designed to follow their continuity and storylines, but as more UK material became necessary with the increased publishing schedule, the strips became more ambitious in scope and dramatic in execution. From the first UK strip, Man of Iron, in January 1985, to End of the Road in September 1990, the UK Transformers comic produced over 2,000 pages of additional material, an impressive body of work that would have accounted for another 90 issues of the US monthly. For an entire generation of British kids, Marvel's Transformers comic was their first and primary exposure to the characters. The cartoon erred on UK TV, but with nowhere near the regularity of the US TV broadcasts. The toys made it to these shows, but with key figures such as Shockwave, Swoop and Omega Supreme surprisingly omitted from the stockpile. By contrast, the comic was available in all mass-market newsagents and supermarkets, and sold, at its peak, over 200,000 copies a week. And it was completely ignored by me. I have no affinity for the Transformers. None whatsoever. I watched the cartoon as a kid, I enjoyed it well enough, but by 1984 I was just that little bit too old to be getting into the toys, and as such, I just never bothered with the comic. None of my kids were ever into it, so I never gained any knowledge via osmosis like I have with Metal Gear Solid, Ben 10, or the entire current lineup of the Disney Channel. In fact, up until this show, I had never read a single Transformers comic, never played with a single solitary Transformers toy, and have only ever seen one Transformers movie, the Michael Bay 2007 flick, which I thought was loud, vacuous, devoid of characters I gave a toss about, lacking in drama, incomprehensible of plot, and just a thoroughly unpleasant movie-going experience. Not quite as stomach-churningly awful as the Pirates of the Caribbean sequel, but pretty terrible nevertheless. What's your knowledge of Transformers, Michael? Well, I grew up with the animated movie, which I bought on DVD purely out of nostalgia. You didn't have it on DVD, you had it on video? I know, but I bought it on DVD. Have we got it on DVD? Yeah. It was £2 in HMV. If I'd known we had that, I would have watched it for this show. It's just the, the, the film. Yeah. But I got it for two quid in HMV. Purely well, out of nostalgia reasons. Well, one of the, the comics that we had for this and we'll discuss this in a minute follows yeah. on from that movie so yeah. if if I'd known we had that movie mm-hmm. I'd have watched that and maybe we'd have chose a different set of comics but I, I watched it when I bought the DVD I mean Adam and I were both watching it because it's up in our bedroom and all the way through it's like a decent film but it's got a horrible 80s soundtrack so when Optimus Prime and Megatron are having a fight to the death which Optimus Prime dies in there's a horrible 80s synthy pop track behind it. Well, I'm just going to sit here and there point out... There was no easy way out for Optimus Prime. It's there was funny no you should say this. Vince DiCola, who did the soundtrack for Rocky IV, <laughs> did the soundtrack for Transformers the movie. Did he actually? Yeah, true story. Fair enough. Lovely listeners are probably going to hear that very soundtrack <laughs> underneath this show. <laughs> Wait, apart from that... I, I don't have much knowledge. I mean, um, my friend Singleton is a big fan of Transformers. Is he? Yeah, he's got all of, a lot of them lined up 
on his bookshelf and he keeps them all separately so he's got his main ones together and his beast war ones together and his big <laughs> ones together that's pretty cool I didn't know Singleton was into Transformers yeah but I, I quite like them because I got a few of them from Nan and Grandma when the movie came out right the uh, new the 2007 one yeah which was fine when I went watching it then I was like oh yeah robots are fighting each other but what, watching it again there's nothing to it I missed the second one we had to go watching the third one as part of a school trip was the third one okay? It, it didn't have Megan Fox in it. So uh, it was better then? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, still not great. Um, I, I like the little toys because I like not reading the instructions because they were essentially puzzles. They were toys that were puzzles. Right, that you can make into whatever you wanted to make them into. Well, not that, but it was like a puzzle of how do you get it from... Because to my knowledge, when they came out, it, they, they were supposed to be puzzles. There were no instructions for them. Right. It was a how do you get A into B. How do you make this into a truck? Yeah, so I, I, I quite like doing that with them, but right. I, I don't have much knowledge. When people say, oh, Sideswipe and oh, Megatron X, I'm like, I might have the last one up. <laughs> oh, Megatron X does sound like a good it, name it for a Transformer. I was like, oh, you mean the, the helicopter or the tank? <laughs> It does sound like it could be a legit. If you hadn't said you made that up, I wouldn't have known. Oh, yeah. But we would have got an email in saying, Who the hell's Omegatron X? <laughs> and you would have said, Ah, well, Omegatron X is a lesser known character created by me that only exists in my Transformers continuity. Oh, you know, I have seen Optimus Prime in real life. Oh, yeah? I actually have, yeah. What? Uh, in Shanghai, I think it was. Oh, right, yeah, when you were over in Shanghai. The Olympic Stadium, there's cool. a big, massive. And you did not take a picture of this? I did, but because it was in the distance, we weren't allowed to bugger off. Well, that's shocking. I didn't even know you did see it. Anyway, listener Damien Lee got in touch and practically begged us to do a Transformers episode. And I've got to admit, I was sceptical. But we've given a try to other things we've known nothing about and ended up liking them, so what the hell, let's give it a go. Damien emailed us and had this to say on the subject of Transformers. I cannot gush enough about Transformers UK, or to fuck. <laughs> it was my gateway to Marvel and later DC. Is that the Yorkshire pronunciation of it? <laughs> to fuck. I don't give a to fuck. I just start swearing so I don't have to play it. Okay. <laughs> it's the anacronym. Brilliant. Anyway, sorry, we interrupted Damien there. It was my gateway to Marvel and later DC, introducing me to the rest of the Marvel UK output, The Punisher, Thundercats, meh, even then, The Complete, Spider-Man, etc. The art was often brilliant and always brilliantly coloured. The backup showed me Mignola's Rocket Raccoon. I always got a laugh from Lou Stringer's cartoons. I had a pen pal for ten years that I met through the letters page. To fuck even more than Spider-Man, The X-Men or anything else is the spine of my comic life. For a long time, it was unavailable. The US Marvel stuff was reprinted after the Dreamweave relaunch. Titan collected some of the UK classics in fantastic giant-sized trade paperbacks, out of print and available for wildly varying prices nowadays. IDW republished them squashed to US comic format, cheap as chips now. And there's a current Transformers UK reprint trade paperback series, sadly marred by using the US format, shrinking the art, and featuring some weirdly poor reproductions, but I'm still buying them. As you no doubt know, the continuity of these comics is currently being wrapped up by Furman for IDW. I'm planning an epic reread of all the UK and US comics when the series ends at issue 100. I may finish in time for my retirement, Damien concluded. Many of 
the characters in this series were brand new to Michael and I. I knew of Optimus Prime and Megatron, but that was about it. I was also familiar with the key gimmick of the series, that the Autobots and the Decepticons can transform into other things, normally bearing a striking resemblance to Earth-type vehicles. Optimus Prime, in addition to being the leader of the Autobots and protector of all life, can become a semi-automatic truck. Megatron, in addition to being leader of opposing faction, the Decepticons, is cunning and ruthless and longs to return home to Cybertron, but only after killing the Autobots. He can transform into a Walter P-38. I presume it's explained somewhere how these alien beings all transform into Earth equipment. We'll cover the other characters as we go. I'm pretty sure somewhere they said when they came to Earth they had scanny things which scanned vehicles. Did they? I think so they how did Megatron end up being a Walther P-38? He landed in a weapons factory. And how is that in any way useful if he's ever on his own? He doesn't eat him and he shoots in the opposite direction. So he can pull his own trigger, can he? Okay, and he relies on someone else to do it, so... That's what I mean. The great, that's a, the great fearful Megatron has to have somebody else pick him up, caress his trigger, and shoot one off. Yeah, they changed it in the movie so he was a massive jet plane fighter. Well, an awful lot of them are F-18, F-15 fighters. I discovered that in my research. Starscream. Yeah. Starscream's my favourite. Is he? Yeah. I, I liked it. Starscream's the same thing, his own team. Yeah, he doesn't care about anyone else, does he? Yeah. I liked, he was my favourite character in this as well. Yeah, it's fun on the, the, the Transformers game they did for the mover. It's it's a pretty poor game, it's worse than the movie, but you can mess around as massive monsters and blow buildings up. And See, I, how can you go wrong with that premise? It's yeah. robots fighting robots, that should be cool. I know, yeah, but... It, Pacific Rim! Oh, that, that is cool. That's what I mean. But yeah, you can get to play as Megatron, this massive city, and I, I used to love going around, and I didn't stop until every building was destroyed. It was just this flat playing field. <laughs> you could see where the map ended. <laughs> um, Damien suggested a number of stories that we could possibly look at, including The Enemy Within, from issues 13 through 17, Dinobot Hunt, from issues 47 through 50, and Target 2006, an epic time travel tale from issues 78 through 88. Having read all of these, we have selected the story The Enemy Within as our choice for the show, mainly because it seems the most accessible to new readers and therefore the easiest for us to discuss without getting bogged down in the minutiae of Transformers continuity. As mentioned, this ran through Transformers issues 13 through 17, cover dated March 9th through May the 4th, 1985. The cover for issue 13 shows an Autobot named Brawn hoisting aloft a supposed ally, Mirage, and preparing to hurling to the floor. The only text on the cover asks, Has Brawn changed sides? It does the job, I suppose. The entire story is written by Simon Furman, with art by John Ridgway for Chapter 1, and Mike Collins, fresh off last week's Spider-Man story, for the remaining chapters. Letters were by Richard Starkings, colours by Gina Hart, and it was edited by Sheila Craner. What do you think of that cover, Michael? It's, it's fine enough. It's alright, isn't I, it? I do recognise the guy on the right, the racy, racy car. What is he? I have no idea. He does. You don't remember his name, though? No, he's a racy, racy car with what would become Optimus Prime's head. Right. Okay. Fair enough. Leader of the Decepticons, Megatron, is facing a revolution. Starscream is demanding to know why they are loitering around on planet Earth and not instead attacking their arch foes, the Autobots. Starscream demands it be put to a vote, but Megatron knocks back this suggestion and threatens to kill Starscream. Democracy is something that happens to other people, apparently, on Cybertron. Starscream cowers away but knows he has planted the seeds of discord. 
Megatron is also aware of this and dispatches Ravage to keep his eye on Starscream and bring him any evidence necessary to destroy him. Over at the Ark, the starship that brought the Autobots to Earth, various different Autobots are doing repair work when an accident sends feedback through Braun, causing him to backfire severely. Meanwhile, Starscream has decided if Megatron will not act, he will, and prepares to attack an Earth Force base. When the Autobots retaliate, the Decepticons will have no choice but to join the fray, but Ravage sees all and prepares to report back when he is seen. Starscream transforms into a fighter jet and pursues Ravage, who is a robot dog, and pitched battle between them leads to Ravage's supposed death. I think he's actually supposed to be a panther, isn't he? Mm. Back at the Ark, Braun continues to act strangely and turns upon his friends, claiming they are all enemies before nearly killing Mirage. He leaves the Ark behind, turning from his friends as at Oregon 4 Alpha Air Force Base, Starscream attacks. New characters in this chapter, well, new to me, Anyway, you may know who they are, isn't it? Braun can apparently become a 1969 Land Rover and is the thing of the team, the second strongest Autobot. Ravage is a panther-shaped Decepticon and can become a cassette tape, which I'm sure comes in very useful in this digital age. It was, I remember him from the movie. What does he do? Exactly, I thought, just when you think that Megatron is the most useless Transformer, there's a guy who can turn into a cassette tape. Unless you want to listen to Genesis, you're buggered. <laughs> Yeah, unless you want to listen to 80s synth, (laughs) like the soundtrack to the movie. Yeah, yeah. That is one way they can sell the soundtrack. You get a transforming record tape (laughs) that turns into a panther and transform it back to the tape and you can listen to the soundtrack. On these tape players that no one has anymore. Yeah. (laughs) They must must have been a big hit in the 80s, I'm sure. They must have been, yeah, yeah. Scheming and deceptive. He's a bit like Nightcrawler in that he can vanish into the shadows. Starscream can become an F-15 Eagle fighter jet and is sneaky and manipulative, but a cunning warrior. Prefers a straight fight artist sneaking around. Mirage can become a Formula One race car, not a fighter, and prefers to be hunting, although can cast illusions. That will come in useful later on. Did you get all those descriptions off Wikipedia? Yeah, I just nicked all that off Wikipedia. <laughs> I don't know who these people are, do I? Yeah. I just typed in list of Transformers characters and that's what came up. I don't even know who said Braun is the second strongest Transformer. Wikipedia. Let's be honest, look at him. Look at his little tiny thin arms. His arms are thinner than mine. How is he lifting all that stuff Are you up? saying that Braun is actually weedy and the nickname is ironic? Is could, that what you're it saying? It could be, yeah. Uh, fair enough. The, the comic opens straight in the action with Starscream's coup launching the story. There doesn't seem to be any consistency to the length of each chapter. This first one clocks in at 12 pages, but the final chapter is only six. The title, The Enemy Within, refers to both of the internal conflicts going on within each group between the Autobots and the Decepticons. Not being at all familiar with this property, I was left a little baffled by the backstory. I presume, and you can no doubt tell me if I'm wrong, some war of some kind between the Autobots and the Decepticons is raging on Cybertron, and somehow these two factions have ended up on Earth. Given that I have blanked the film from my mind, other than the rather gratuitous shot of Megan Fox's arse, I don't recall what the story was in the film either. Something to do with an all spark or something? That was in Cybertron that gave it its power. Right. And then they wanted it so that they could, whoever possessed it, had ultimate power or something. You don't remember the plot either, do you? It's vaguely. There, <laughs> there were giant robots in it and there was... Megan Fox's ass. That's my only memory of the film, Megan Fox's ass. 
See, I was going, oh yeah, monsters, robots. <laughs> this film is somewhat interesting. Right, and then... Somewhat. Somewhat. <laughs> ended up on Earth. And they wanted the Allspark, and then it turned into really small, and yet it didn't weigh the same. I, I don't know, I've blanked it out of my memory. Yeah. Um, anyway, are the Transformers living, breathing flesh and blood creatures? Because they take incredible punishment throughout this story. Hmm. The kind of stuff that would have killed an organic life form, and they just kind of shrug it off. Well, oil change. <laughs> An oil Melts change makes everything better. Oh, yeah, yeah. Is that what you're saying? See, what I want to know is why they have facial features that move like a person. I, 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 don't, I don't know. I don't know enough about them to say why. I mean, so you're saying when they landed on Earth, they adopted the form of vehicles and such. They're caught into what so I is, in the movie. So what's the natural form? Is the natural form to big hulking robots that can't do anything? Well, in the Beast Wars stuff, they look pretty much the same, only animally. Right. So, I'm assuming they kind of look humanoid anyway. Right. Okay, fair enough. What I don't know is where they get their names from. The Autobots, you can assume it's because the automobiles. The Decepticons, well, gee, maybe the Deceptive... <laughs> maybe but the Decepticons aren't good guys. In that case, why why are they not called Autobots and Autocons? I don't know. Because, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know my idea. <laughs> I prefer Autobots and Autocons, because that way you're not signalling hey you're, we're you're, bad yeah, guys you're not signposting that yeah. the Decepticons are the bad guys yeah, you're are you? in uniform with the names as well that's true mm. that's, so you should create this stuff I should why you it? should come up with a tie line I, sh- I should it yeah. makes us millions mm-hmm. I'd be but, no, but not our children yeah screw them <laughs> <laughs> they can create their own tie line yeah let them create their own stuff Starscream is apparently for an all out attack on the planet and the Autobots whereas Megatron seems to prefer some Cold War type struggle for now Starscream, not unreasonably, asks for it to be put to the vote. And Megatron says no. So there are divisions in the ranks right there that I would have much preferred to see follow up on. Mm. I much preferred the Decepticon part of this story. Yeah. It was brilliant. It was Machiavellian and Shakespearean and there was backstabbing (laughs) going on and there was people who were changing sides all the way through and it was great. All the Decepticon stuff was brilliant. Yeah. The Autobot stuff, not so much. Yeah. The Autobot stuff, a little bit, a little bit weak. Uh, Starscream turns into a groveling weakling rather easy, doesn't he? Because it's all a cunning ruse. It is all a cunning ruse, but that, that can't do his reputation any good. Oh, don't kill me, Megatron! Please don't kill me! He's, he's feeding Megatron's ego, ego so right. he can go do what he wants. Okay. Alright, fair enough, I don't mind that. Uh, we then go to the main plot with the auto, but I mean, neither one's really a main plot, either. it's parallel plots, isn't yeah. it? Parallel plotting. Um, Braun gets hit by an electric current that changes his personality, which was done 30 years on Knight Rider, and Kit got an alternative personality. Yeah. And turned evil. <laughs> evil Kit. I am the voice of Knight Rider. <laughs> <laughs> he knew that was coming. Any excuse. Any excuse to dig out Kit, obviously. Turbo boost. <laughs> I'm such a little noise. <laughs> um... There was a, a little comic book thing here that if Starscream hadn't hung around in the toilets <laughs> talking to himself, yeah. Ravage wouldn't have overheard him and therefore wouldn't know his plan. Seems to me that should be in the <laughs> villain handbook. Do not talk aloud to yourself when you think you are alone <laughs> because inevitably you're not. You're just in the cubicle and Ravage goes in the cubicle <laughs> next to him. 
Star screams on the crapper. <laughs> Don't knock it out of your bolts. <laughs> I'm in an oil leak. Yeah. <laughs> oh dear. Um, I also did wonder if a robot from Cybertron would really say surprise sucker as Ravage does here. Uh, yeah. Is that perfectly okay in 80s vernacular that this <laughs> robot says sucker? Yeah. You have no problem with that. It's the 80s, isn't it? It was the 80s, yeah. If you just pull the Team America, surprise, cop (laughs) out! I don't think that's very likely. (laughs) Well, the first time in this story we see the presumed death of a regular character. Starscream supposedly destroys Ravage. Furman actually does a pretty good job with the characterisation throughout the entire story. Although Optimus Prime has a huge stick up his ass about something, doesn't he? Yeah. He's a boring, bland, stiff... Optimus. Yeah, he's just... Optimus block of wood. He's arguably the least interesting character in the story, isn't he? Luckily, he's in it the least amount, too. There is that, but one would imagine he's the central character if he's that boring most of the time. (laughs) I don't know, it's it's because I'm older, but I would have been on the Decepticon side. (laughs) Certainly from a storytelling point of view, they're just much more interesting, aren't they? All that happens with the Autobots is, come on, Autobots. Yes. Let's Let's get brawn. Let's not harm the humans. (laughs) I don't care about you, my fellow teammates, but if anyone harms those humans... (laughs) Starscream then goes and attacks the Air Force base, which was great. Yeah, I did like the attack on the Air Force base. And the Air Force scenes were very realistic. They had a very Dan Durr yeah. feel to them, which I liked a great deal. It was a nice touch of realism amidst all the robot stuff. And the the only place we get a splash page mm. is on the final page cliffhanger, where a talking F-15 fighter jet... Because that isn't terrifying at all. <laughs> ...attacks the Air Force base. I, I did have a question about that. Is the world at large aware of the Transformers? I assume... Well, Phil Spider-Man is. Yes, Phil Spider-Man's <laughs> well aware of them. Because <laughs> he's met read them. This, yeah. From what we've read of them. But, but, I, I but if you're yeah. an Air Force base and a plane attacks you and speaks at you, <laughs> yeah. I think they're not trying to keep it under a bush, are they? Well, giant robots are hard to disguise. Or are hard to disguise. I think. Oh, well, no, they can't. They disguise them as trucks. Yeah. So... Well, talking trucks. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. No, well, that was my thing. Are the Transformers well known? I, I'm assuming so, yeah. I, I think they are, anyway. Yeah. Right, so they're not, like, hiding. I mean, can you imagine if Optimus Prime is going for a drive through downtown and there's a light on red for ten minutes and he goes, <laughs> come on, lights, and everyone looks around everyone and wonders where the voice came from. <laughs> I imagine that Optimus Prime was really the truck from BJ and the Burr. <laughs> BJ McKay rides around in it with his best friend, Burr. Yeah, well, yeah, it's just he never transformed. He in that was show. that good at disguising. Yeah. You never knew. Yeah, you never knew. It was him. It's the same guy. Yeah, it's in my head. Anyway, and um, Optimus Prime could also transform into car. Okay, from Night Rider, simply because they have the same voice. All right. Okay. <laughs> uh, I didn't. I did. I liked this opening chapter. Yeah. I did actually think the opening chapter was uh, very entertaining, very intriguing. If Starscream had a problem with the enemies, though, why did he blow up? 
for humans or force because his plan was to bring the Autobots out of hiding and then he would bomb them and then he would bomb them the only problem with that is later in the story the The Decepticons seem to know where the Autobots are so why don't they go and do the exactly so I mean for this issue it worked fine but later I'm going to bring but later when you read the whole thing like we did one of my notes I think later on is but wait a minute Starscream didn't know where they were at the beginning of this story yeah (laughs) that didn't quite hold up but anyway Simon Furman does a great job of bringing new readers up to speed I didn't feel lost in reading this, given I've never read a Transformers comic before, and he explained who all the characters were, and it was alright. The art was okay, but I, I have a really hard time telling who's who. Well, I thought the art was very hit and miss from page to page. Yeah. Either the pencil, the black and white ones were good, but the colour wasn't, or the colour was good, and the black and white wasn't. Yeah, my the problem I had, because this was the time when Marvel was doing that, Marvel UK was doing that, half of it was colour, half of it was black and white, and it would just switch between pages. Yeah. We mentioned this last week with Spider-Man, it was like, you know, you're watching something on a faulty TV, or the reception's bad, or something. But a lot of the time, the only way I could tell who was who was because of the colour. Yeah. And so when it went into black and white, I didn't know what, who was what. I didn't know what was going on, so that confused me a little bit. Did you not notice that sometimes, the, in the colour bits, the Transformers would have a completely different colour scheme depending on whether they were humanoid or vehicle? No, I didn't notice the colour. Braun is a perfect example, and I think it's this issue. Right, well, we'll... we'll he turns from yellow to green. Does he? Yeah. All right, we'll, we'll keep an eye out for that. I thought the characterisation was good. Simon Furman introduced this into the Decepticons particularly well. And, like, it's a lot of treachery and backstabbing in the Decepticons. They were much more interested yeah. than, uh, than the Autobots. He just had a Decepticons comic. Yeah, I, mean, I would imagine at some point they will have done an issue from the point of view of the Decepticons. Well, that seems like an obvious thing to do. Yeah. But this was, essentially, wasn't it? The Autobots yeah. bit of this, this story was rather limited. Braun turns evil because of an electrical fault. <laughs> Autobots must stop him. That's pretty much their plot. Yeah. And certainly until issue four. Optimus Prime only wants to stop him because he might hurt those humans. Yes. Whereas the Decepticons part of the story is this big intrigue, <laughs> isn't it? It's like I said, backstabbing, treachery. Yeah. People switching sides. Shakespearean melodrama. <laughs> All good stuff for Decepticons. Issue 14's cover is very strange. It's a panel coverless, similar to the interior of the comic. The first panel features cops with mirrored sunglasses. The second panel features Braun transforming into a Land Rover and Optimus Prime saying, I have seen enough. He must be stopped. It's a little bit busy, to be honest. There's no central image to really sell the cover to the reader. It's also really cheap, as it's just panels from the comic cut and pasted to make a cover. Yeah. Oh, that was really cheap. They chose some pretty naff panels as well. Yeah, they didn't choose particularly attractive panels, did they? So they chose uh, Braun turning into a car. Okay, it's Transformers, I guess. It looks cool. Optimus Prime pointing and talking. All right, it's Optimus Prime. But (laughs) close upon a couple of cops. Close upon a couple of cops were in 80s mirrored shades. What is this? Chips? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. Cutting a car chase between the Transformers and the ambiguously gay cops. Ambiguously gay cops. <laughs> yes, that would that would that would probably be funny. Yes. Part two, unlike part one, has a subtitle: "The Enemy Within the Best Laid Plans." Ravage, however, has survived Kel's surprise and managed to crawl, seriously injured, back to base, where he warns Megatron of what has transpired. Elsewhere, Starscream's attack on the Air Force base continues, and the base scrambles jets. Starscream wonders why the Autobots haven't arrived yet. Well, it's mainly because they've got their own problems, namely Braun, whose neural nets have been affected by the shock received in the last story. 
So addled is Braun's mind that he decides to liberate his people who have been enslaved by the human race, yet surprisingly the cars and trucks he tries to liberate do not immediately embrace their newfound freedom, nor do the policemen whose car Braun destroys. The Autobots arrive to stop Braun as elsewhere the Decepticons arrive to stop Starscream. Page one has Ravage wounded and beaten, implying that they are organic creatures in some way. They don't seem to bleed, though, mm. but they can be hurt. Yeah. So, all right, they must, they must be living creatures of some kind. Uh, page three is laid out absolutely terribly, isn't it? Yeah, it's readable. The panel, I think the panels are a real jumble. The captions in the middle of the page are so plentiful, they cover the entire middle section of art. And having a flashback to last issue, in the middle of an action scene, where Starscream is attacking the Air Force base, is just bad planet. Which is a shame, as the actual action beat Starscream just unloading on the Air Force base and its personnel is pretty exciting mm. and really quite cool. And in the middle, they've just got this huge info dump. They have a lot of info dumps in it anyway. It's like something will happen, then there'll be a flashback to how that happened. Yeah, the most egregious of them comes up in episode four. Yeah. So we'll get to that later. The most egregious one happens on the very last page of the fifth one. Or was the it? sixth one. Yeah, right. yeah, there's only five parts. Yeah, the fifth one, well, at the very end, it was, aha, it was a cunning ruse the entire time. <laughs> this is what really happened in the last <laughs> issue. Oh, yeah. Yes, I know what you mean. Here's the, these, big, the big twist ended. Yeah. What's his face? Mirage just pulls something out of his ass just to make the story work in everyone's favour. Yeah, the twist ending where Bruce Willis is a man. <laughs> that one, yeah. Page four, Optimus Prime does that really awful leadership thing here that I absolutely hate when I see it in TV and comics. Mirage tries to sell him something really important, but Optimus Prime cuts him off simply because if he didn't, the ending wouldn't work. Yeah. That's the only reason he doesn't listen to him, isn't it? He just keeps going, just stick to the facts! <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I'm trying to tell you something that could end this story now. Yeah. But it's got to last five issues. So Optimus Prime is a douche. Well, he did have a screen wiper stuck of his exhaust. He does, yeah. I mean, surely a good leader would listen to what his men have to say before making decisions? Yeah. It seems like it's logical. Picard used to do this to Worf all the time. Not listen to a word Worf said, yet inevitably Worf always turned out to be right. Yeah. And pick out, oh, I will tug at my shirt and make pronouncements. Last well, time was really bored in this anyway, and it's like, why is even the lead? All he cares about is the humans. Yeah. Every other line is, we better stop him before he hurts the humans. I can, understand, not those humans. I can understand him not wanting us to get caught in the middle of his war yeah. with the Decepticons, but at the same time, why don't they just go and destroy them? <laughs> just go and open fire on their ass and just get it over with. Yeah, because that would be too... It'd be over. Yeah. The strip would be over, wouldn't it? Yeah. Basically, that's what you've got. Braun mistaking cars and trucks for his oppressed <laughs> brethren was funny. Yeah. Come on, that was amusing. And um, so from this we have to assume he's not been on Earth long. Yeah. If he's still confusing real cars... Well, is that not... Or his neural nets have fired wrong. Yeah, I, I was assuming it was that. All right, fair enough. I did have to wonder about the studious disinterest of the townspeople, though. That this robot becomes a truck right in front of them, you know, in the middle of any town USA. And they just don't bat an eyelid. Because these guys are used to the Transformers. Are they? Yeah. You think so? You think that's the case, that this, Transformers are accepted? This is in the same town as G.I. Joe. You know, right. the, the Air Force base is getting blown up. That's the Air Force base they were in in G.I. Joe. Crossover. Yeah. That would have been good. I would have liked that. Uh, 
the traffic lights in this sequence all look suspiciously British and not American. Okay. The traffic lights don't look like American traffic lights to me. Maybe the Transformers are based in UK, USA. Right. They're based in a little known part of the USA <laughs> that actually has lots of UK stuff around, like traffic lights and pavements and all that stuff. It was one of the, the, the British people on the boats. <laughs> the, the discoverers, the settlers, whatever we call them. The people on the boats who discovered coffee and such. <laughs> Tea. Tea. I think is what you're referring to. Your grasp of American history is absolutely astounding. My grasp of British history is incredibly astounding. <laughs> I'm an artist, dude. I don't do history. <laughs> Uh, neat little second chapter is alright. Furman does an excellent job of balancing the thematic links between the Autobots and the Decepticons in the story, even if the art is often cramped and unappealing. Or at least I thought it was. What did you think of this one? Good. I, I mean, the action beats were fun. I guess. I, I just... Braun really got annoying. Yeah, like, well, like we've just said, really, the Autobots part of the story is easily the weakest part of the story. And they do kind of switch between which parts focus on which side of the story. Yeah, and it's it's a shit because the Decepticon stuff was much more interesting. Yeah. Uh, issue 15 has Optimus Prime versus Braun. None of the covers have really been particularly great, but this one's just covered in copy. Is that not Starscream fighting Braun? Is it Starscream fighting Braun? Well, no, that's, that's episode 5. He has wings. Well, maybe it is. That's, that's what I mean. I can't tell the difference. <laughs> I guess he's red, blue, and white, so I can see your confusion. Yeah, so, you know. Okay. Uh, cover. Lots of cover copy. A giant glossy poster is a free gift. A Transformers badge is another free gift. And there's a chance to win a Kodak disc camera and a head-on clash for the warring Transformers. There's just too much writing on it. Yeah. Did the, the disc camera, did you have to put a CD into the camera? It wasn't a CD. It was 1985, dude. It's a disc. Yeah, it's kind of, yeah, yeah, roughly. Yeah, you, you had a disc in the camera. Was it, was it one of the smaller ones? They never took off. Part three is subtitled Crime and Punishment. Optimus Prime tricks Braun into thinking that he has defeated the Autobots, but it is a cunning ruse, and fellow Autobot Red Alert takes Braun out, and Autobot medic Ratchet administers a neurotranquilizer. With Braun sedated, they take their leave. Elsewhere, Starscream finds himself being pursued by Skywarp and Thundercracker and wonders where it all went wrong. Thundercracker unleashes a sonic blast causing a sensory overload in Starscream and whilst he's spinning around in an uncontrollable deadly tailspin, Skywarp blows Starscream out of the sky. Crashed and burning, Megatron arrives and sentences him to obliteration, but Starscream demands the right of trial by combat. Back at the Ark, Braun seems back to his old self, but Optimus Prime cannot declare him fit for duty until he is sure that whatever caused the affliction is cured. Mirage tells Optimus that he too was affected in some way by the accident that affected Braun. As Optimus Prime finally listens, Megatron wonders who he can find to fight to the death with Starscream, and Ravage, who's been monitoring Earth TV, has a suggestion. Megatron contacts Optimus Prime, because now apparently they know where they are, and suggests that this trial by combat may be a way for Braun to recover his honour, and Braun agrees. Both Autobot and Decepticon send an observer to ensure play is fur, and Braun and Starscream face each other across the desert plains. New characters in this chapter are Skywarp. Like Starscream, can become an F-15 eagle, sneaky and untrustworthy. He's no threat to Starscream in the intelligence department. 
Thundercracker, <laughs> another F-15 Eagle, which surely limited their sales figures as toys. Character-wise, he's not entirely convinced the Decepticons are in the right. Red Alert can become a Lamborghini Countach and is paranoid and good at spotting trouble. Aren't they all good at spotting trouble? Uh, the Autobots probably cause more property damage here than the Decepticons do, but at least nobody seems to be killed in Braun's Rampage. Starscream is seen to kill at least four Air Force pilots on panel, isn't he? Furman has been pretty good, and the story side of this has been quite gripping. However, on page three, he does use a storytelling device I absolutely loathe. Starscream has escaped the cliffhanger from the last chapter, and instead fills us in via flashback to a scene we didn't actually see. I don't like it when they do that. Mm. His escape takes place in between issues. Didn't they do that in Batman every other week, though? In what? In which Batman? The Adam West one. No, they always showed him escaping. Okay. More or less. Yeah. I mean, I think there's once or twice where he just appeared and you're like, oh, I had this bat thing and you didn't see me do it. But most of the time they showed him escape. Here, the cliffhanger ending was the Autobots showed up for Ravage. Yeah. Not Ravage, Braun. And the Decepticons showed up for Starscream and we were getting a big fight. And then in this next chapter, Starscream's flying away and we get a flashback showing you how he got away. I always think that's cheating. Mm. You're, you're cheating us out of the cliffhanger ending. I don't like it. I don't like it when you yeah, do that. You've got to progress the story somehow. I know, but it's three panels. Surely you could have shown it at the beginning. I guess, but... Okay. Structure it a little bit better. Ravage took a few hits from Starscream in the first and second parts and was seen to be hurt. Starscream takes on a full-on missile attack from Skywarp in a really rather exciting Top Gun-esque aerial battle sequence and is seen almost entirely ablaze before crashing into the ground. Yet he makes a quick enough recovery to engage in trial by combat before the end of the issue. Look at him on that bed. He's on fire! And crash lands. Megatron had his, his best mechanics on it. Well, are they easily just rebuilt and repaired? Yeah. So again, not? do they have brains and feelings and, and are they flesh and blood? What are they? Okay, they're like the T-1000. Yeah, but so the T-1000 was a robot. So are these? But these seem to have emotions. Okay, T-1000 they, they, didn't. They have emotions and pain. Yeah. Pain. <laughs> they have, they have pain, and they yeah. can be sneaky and deceptive. They, they have souls and, and treacherous, and um, yeah. Right. Oh, all right. Fair enough. They're like robots with souls. I just thought that that looked like a pretty serious crash for him to recover from. It was just a mere flesh wound. Was it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's the character-based drama that Furman really excels at. Megatron seems to be holding on as leader by a thread with his own troops, not just Starscream, questioning his orders. He's even seen to have to back down in front of his own soldiers when Starscream demands the trial by combat option. I do have to say, Megatron's Transformer is a bit lame. Yeah. He just becomes a gun. You know. Seems rather undignified for a leader that somebody has to carry you around and do everything with you. Didn't they turn him into a tank at one point? That would make a little bit more sense to turn him into an offensive weapon. Yeah. Other than a useless offensive weapon. Yeah, other than a useless weapon. Well, it's not useless, but you know what I mean? It seems a bit like he would have to change into whatever he changes into and then somebody would have to pick him up and use him. Yeah. He's the leader. Yeah. Unless that's the point. Someone carry me. Unless he... Yeah. 
Unless he just stands around giving orders. Yes, glorious leader. <laughs> ah, enough snark from you, Starscream. And what happens when he runs out of bullets? Infinite ammo. <laughs> Infinite lives. Yes. One shot, one kill. Yeah. Is that what it is? Again, Optimus Prime disregards whatever Mirage may have to say. And Mirage has to force him to get him to listen. We, as, as the reader, are still not told what it is, though. It won't be until the very last page. It won't be until the very last page of the story, yeah. Rather curiously, the story just grinds to a halt in the middle for Megatron to watch an old video of Trial by Combat <laughs> back on Cybertron. Yeah. Bit of a head-scratcher, this, to be honest, as it just slows the story right down. Um, unless he actually didn't know what trial by <laughs> combat was and of course didn't, didn't, he knows what it didn't is. want to say that in front of his men <laughs> so he's just got onto this video yeah. of trial by combat 1 through 10 yeah. that he just happens to have with him the bootleg tapes yeah. <laughs> it is, it's, it's like if Captain Kirk had just stopped off to watch a mock time in the middle of Wrath of Khan isn't it <laughs> if he stopped and watched some holodeck tapes yeah it's exactly like that especially as it, it doesn't add anything to the story yeah, other than foreshadowing what could happen during the trial Yeah, but it doesn't. It doesn't happen. All it foreshadows is that we've got a trial by combat coming up. I think we're, we're aware of what a trial by combat entails without three pages of this ye olde battle on Cybertron. we've never met before. And don't, don't care, care about. about. Yeah, this, this came out of nowhere and seemed really, really silly. Ravage's suggestion of asking the Autobots if Braun will fight is also pulled out of his ass, isn't it? Yeah. It just says, um, Ravage has been monitoring Earth Broadcast, presumably TV, and found an opponent for Starscream, but Earth Broadcast won't have known what happened to Braun. Yeah. Optimus Prime clearly says, in the story, he actually says that let's get out of Dodge before we're questioned as to what happened. So, how does, how does monitoring TV help him figure that out? Uh, I didn't get that at all. It would have made much more sense to me if Ravage had somehow happened upon the Autobots discussing this in some way. Yeah. Rather than, oh, yeah, I saw on telly. <laughs> I got this idea of a TV show I once watched. Yeah. Bronze, there's this car, right, this black <laughs> Trans Am, and it had been warped so that it was evil. Well, this happened to Braun. <laughs> So let's challenge him. <laughs> Kit versus Braun. Yeah. That would act, I would that would I would pay money for that. Yeah. That I, would be awesome. I like how Optimus Prime and Megatron just phone you put Skype each other. <laughs> they totally do. You think they do this sometimes? It's like they're supposed to be arch enemies. <laughs> they're actually Skype buddies. Yeah. You think they call each other and talk about how rotten it is being a leader? <laughs> The, the type of enemies who meet up for games of chess. Yeah, and then the monster's name as well. In another life, I would have called you brother. Yeah. <laughs> um, I actually thought the wheels came off the wagon a little bit in this chapter. The Deus Ex is set up with Mirage's chat with Prime, but there's long stretches given over to the pointless fight between the death back on Cybertron. And how Ravage manages to put two and two together regarding Braun is a little spurious. I guess. Isn't it? Issue 16's cover features Starscream and Braun in battle. Again, is that is that ripped off a panel from inside again? Yeah. Is it? So, you know... It's kind of neat, though. It's not well, a bad cover. Is that a pilot inside Starscream's cockpit? See, that's another thing as well. Is, is that where the brain is? I don't know. Well, because in the cartoons, people got inside of them. 
That's just a little bit gross. It, I, I guess if you want to... It's like somebody climbing inside of you. If you keep reminding yourself that the vehicles, that doesn't bother you as much. Honest. I suppose, no, I suppose, because I suppose a car is... You can get inside a car, but my car doesn't talk to me or have emotion. There is this really cool bit in the movie where Optimus Prime jumps up, grabs Sheila Thief, and then <laughs> pulls him to his chest and transforms around him. Isn't Sheila Boof? Yeah. Isn't he not famous anymore? He's not famous anymore. Is he not? I am not famous anymore. Yeah. Okay. Uh, issue 16's coming. Yeah, it's good. Good cover. It's ripped off a panel off the comic again, so there was obviously no budget for covers <laughs> yeah. in this comic. But it's a good cover. It is Braun leaping upon Starscream, mm. which is a neat trick for um, a truck to be able to do to a fighter jet. He's doing that dive thing they do in wrestling where they jump off. Yeah, the, yes. The, totally, it's climb up on the, the pole yeah. and, and dive on him, yeah. 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 I really want to read uh, Matt and the Cat and Planet Terry. Do you really want to read Matt and the Cat and Planet Terry, which <laughs> is mentioned on the cover of this comic? <laughs> yeah. Totally. Planet, I think they were star comics, weren't they? I don't know. I think that at this point it was obviously a minute cheers. Part four is entitled Trial and Error, which begins with Braun and Starscream engaged in pitched battle, no quarter asked, none given. The battle rages on with neither opponent gaining the upper hand, even though one would have thought a fighter jet could easily pick off a Land Rover in the middle of a desert. Braun attacks Starscream from a cliff top, rather stupid moves, it takes Braun out of his element, and predictably, Starscream drops him from a great height. Braun crawls into a nearby cave and surrenders as Starscream opens fire. For some reason, and maybe explaining the lack of focus, the final two chapters of this story are only six pages instead of twelve. And this one's six pages of fight. It's a good six pages of fight. Very exciting, very well choreographed. The art and the colour in this one are pretty damn good. But it's a battle between a Land Rover and an F-15. Oh, yeah, there we go. He turns from yellow to green. Yes, he does. My money's on the F-15 in such a battle. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I think the Land Rover might you, pull this off. the Land Rover that has no offensive weaponry <laughs> and just drives may have the edge over the vehicle that can fly, bank, swoop, and has missiles. But, you know, if they need to go off-road, then Braun has the upper hand. That's true. In the sense that as long as they don't go anywhere worth the sky. Yeah. <laughs> in the cave? Yeah, in the cave, you know, Land Rover wins. Yeah. Except Starscream could just blow the cave up. Yeah, well, yeah. Doesn't seem like a very fur fight to me. It doesn't. The only way this would be fur is if Starscream was Erwolf and the Land Rover was Kit. <laughs> That's the only way this would be fur. You really want this to <laughs> I just the Peter Cullen thing is what it is. Yeah. Peter Cullen connection. Uh, I don't have much in the way of a page by page breakdown on this one, as it's an extended fight scene. It's a very well done action scene. Mm. It's nice to see the art actually being given a chance to breathe. There's a lot of wide panels in this issue, but Furman doesn't really get a chance to play with the treacherous machinations of the Decepticons in this chapter, which has been my favourite part of the story. Although I suppose we have to throw the twelve-year-olds a bone, don't we? I thought this was the better part of the story. Yeah, it was. It was. I prefer the the, char- the evil character machinations. I yeah. prefer all that Shakespearean backstabbing stuff. That's where I was interested. I'm not saying this wasn't a great aerial combat scene. It was. It was brilliant, and the artwork was good, and the colouring was good. It was all very, very good. I liked it a lot. The thing is, if I'm if I'm reading or watching something with giant robots in, I want. And you just want to see them fight, fight, yeah? Don't you? Yeah. All right, that's fair comment. Mirage being put into this position is again set up. Although I had no idea what Mirage's power was, so this was completely lost on me when I read it first time. Yeah. And likewise, Ravage is also moving into position for whatever it is he has planned which gives Furman another opportunity to 
emphasise the parallel themes that he's been playing with throughout the entire storyline. Issue 17 has a cover of Megatron laughing, <laughs> again repurposed <laughs> from the actual story. It's terrible. <laughs> it does look the like... The jolly box. <laughs> It does. It does look like because the panel's been blown up. It does look a bit squidgy. Yeah, a bit pixelated. I just like the free gift, which is a purple squirt. <laughs> yeah, well, obviously the purple, the free gift's missing. Yeah, yeah. from ours, so we don't even know what it was. <laughs> free gift, big green squirt. Brilliant, excellent, good, very glad. This one's entitled Endings and Beginnings. The Autobots watch on stunned as Starscream blows the entrance to the cave, seemingly killing Braum. However, as Starscream does a victory roll, Ravage, though to ensure a fur fight, remember, fires on him, piercing him with a missile, and Starscream crash lands in the desert. Ravage then tells the Decepticons as they arrive that the backstabbing Autobots fired on Starscream when he won. The Decepticons demand blood retribution, but Megatron says he will decide what form the revenge takes and orders them to take Starscream back to the infirmary. With only he and Ravage left, Megatron laughs heartily. This has worked out even better than he could have hoped. An Autobot is dead, Starscream's attempted insurrection has died of borning, and Ravage has had his revenge. At the Ark, it is revealed that Mirage's own power was also altered in the accident that drove Braun insane, and he can now create lifelike images from his thoughts, and this enabled him to fake Braun's death. Meanwhile, the Decepticons vow that now is the time to crush the Autobots once and for all, and finally the Ark will belong to the Decepticons. Again, this issue opens with Starscream taking a crippling blow. Ravage uses a surface-to-air missile to blow him out of the sky, and the missile goes through him. Yeah. Shoots through his wings. So it was a clean robot wound. Yes, it was a clean wound, easy to fix. Yeah. Well, it didn't stay inside and bounce around inside him. It's wonderfully played, it's, and his crash landing is an equally spectacular fireball. How did he survive this? Through Cybertron wizardry. Okay, alright, fair enough. Am I applying logic to... <laughs> You're applying logic to a story where giant talking robots fight Can other you... giant talking robots. I know, but there has to be an element of believability to it. And if you can do this much punishment on them without them dying, how can you ever hope to win in a war? There must be some way of killing them. There is. The... Yeah, there is. But Starscream's been blown to smithereens in this issue three times now. And each time he just gets them and goes, Ha, oh, Mia's flesh wound! Doesn't he? Yeah. Every time. Maybe the the damage only remains when they're in the humanoid form. Because they only kill Optimus Prime when he's in his humanoid form. Do they? So yeah. when, he's, when he's a fighter jet like that, it doesn't really hurt. Well, remember in the other chapter when he was on fire? Yeah. And then when he turned into... Normal Starscream, he was alright. He was all right. fine again. Yeah. Oh, alright, fair enough, I'll go Because maybe that. when they transform, the parts realigned and fix themselves. Possibly. Anyway, Furman's real focus, for me, the most interesting part of the story, is again given full play in the final chapter, with Ravage lying about the Autobots, attacking Starscream after his victory. It's wonderfully played. In fact, the whole Decepticom's manipulation of power and who was the kingly crown was easily the best written part of this story arc. Mirage's enhanced power, a horrible cheat upon my first reading, is not as bad in subsequent rereads. Mm. It's still a cheat, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's not as much of a cheat once you're actually aware of Mirage's power set. 
mm. and what he can do. So it didn't seem quite as bad, though. You know, I think this they could have added more to this story. They added, added more on to the end of it and made it much better. If they'd have played with the, the Ravage blowing up Starscream thing, where none of the Decepticons knew about it, and Ravage was playing the Decepticons against themselves, more treachery within the Decepticons' yeah, ranks. that would have been good. I quite like all the treacherous stuff. Yeah? I thought that was brilliant. That was exceptionally well written, all the treachery and backstabbing. It was really good. Uh, it was a fun five-part story, wasn't it? It was full of all the requisite action and toy-based carnage fans of the action figures would have no doubt enjoyed, but it was also positively Shakespearean in its backstabbing and treachery. The two divergent plot lines, Braun turning against the Autobots and Starscream trying to provoke a coup within the Decepticon ranks, are nicely played off each other. The Marvel UK publishing gimmick of the time of switching between colour and black and white is more irritating here than in the Spider-Man strip we covered last week as I needed the colours to tell who was who. Maybe sacrilegious to Transformers fans, but there isn't really a lot of difference between how the characters look and I needed the differentiation of colours between the main characters for me to be able to tell them apart. Especially when three characters are F-15. Yes, yeah. That especially was, no, was not helpful. The action was exceptionally well played, but, and this is the non-fan part of me, I do wonder, did the world at large know about the Transformers, or were this a badly kept secret? Certainly in this story, they operate in the open, and Braun destroys a small town when he's evil. The central plank of the plot, though, is weak sauce. Braun having his neural nets disrupted by an electrical backfire, and him returning to his sense with another electrical discharge was old when Knight Rider did it to Kit 30 years ago and Mirage's new abilities came out of nowhere, although I concede this probably wasn't as much of a deus ex machina to regular readers. Still, it was fun. It has everything it needs to make it a smash hit. Tons of colourful characters, action, a sprawling backstory for people to get their teeth into and merchandise to collect. No wonder it became a big hit. Mm-hmm. Well, when it started as merchandise. Yeah, well, you know, but the comics added most of the backstory, didn't they? Well, it was a cartoon based on a line of toys. The cartoon spawned merchandise. The merchandise then spawned more cartoons and comics, which then spawned more merchandise. Yeah, I, I do wonder if they, they ever did reconcile the comics continuity with the cartoons continuity. I don't think so, because there's been so many reboots and spin-offs and retellings. So is the comic just its own thing? Well, I, I think so, yeah. All right, fair enough. That's it, that's it. We, we did a Transformers episode. We did? I quite enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. I, re- I actually did enjoy it. I did enjoy the story a great deal, especially the evil machinations of the, the Transformers. Did you like them? Yeah, it was enjoyable. Yeah, it was enjoyable enough. I enjoyed it. Next time on an all-new episode of Hey Kids Comics, back to the old school we're going. Oh, yeah. For a very special episode. They're all special. They're, they are, yeah. They are all special. We're for one week only. Well, unless we, we do it again. Yeah. Which, you know, I'm not, I'm not ruling it out. Michael and I are going back to the original premise of the show, which is I bring a comic... Single comic, one issue, one story. He brings a comic, single issue, one story. Mm-hmm. I know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing. Are you not doing what we talked about? I might do. If, if I don't find anything else... It'd be a good choice, be an unexpected one. It would. Everyone's expecting you to pick a Vertigo book or a Grant Morrison book. 
And that's what I'm avoiding, but See, I'm looking so at the bookshelf going, it's all Morrison. <laughs> so, you know, I think that'll be a good choice. Yeah. Anyway, you'll have to tune in next week, lovely listener, to Please. see what Michael picks. Unless you put it in your picture. I'd, ooh, should I leave it as a big question mark? Uh, yeah. And see what people, and see if people just, are surprised. Tease it for as much as Yeah, that's a good idea. I don't mind that idea. Yeah. So next week's picture may not have what we're covering. It might have what you're covering. Oh, all right. I'll give mine away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you very much for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this. Another one where we didn't know anything about it. Mm-hmm. And we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Goodbye. used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only and no infringement is intended so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either which vexes us the opinions of michael and andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of michael and andrew and no one else they own them cherish them and look after them but are probably not to be taken too seriously New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, your one-stop shop for a plethora of truly fine shows. And we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. <laughs>